Hello, and welcome to our sixth episode of Roots Radio, a podcast about sharing experiences of those living with ALS. Our guests include those diagnosed with ALS, as well as caregivers, family members, doctors, researchers, therapists, in essence, what we hope to be a broad representation of the ALS community. As a reminder, if you would like to be part of our project, you may contact us at rootsradioals at gmail.com. On June 2nd, 1941, Lou Gehrig, one of the all-time great baseball players, passed from complications arising from ALS, since then known as Lou Gehrig's disease. 80 years later, on June 2nd, 2021, Major League Baseball held its inaugural Lou Gehrig Day across the league to commemorate Gehrig's legacy and raise awareness and funding for ALS research. Notably, the ALS community has been the primary charity for our hometown, Philadelphia Phillies, since 1984, with its commitment to try to strike out ALS. Since that time, the Phillies have raised about $20 million in support of the fight. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Meyer. I'm a social worker who works with the ALS Association, Greater Philadelphia Chapter. And joining me is my co-host and my friend, Lenny Rafalco, who was a patient advocate having been diagnosed with ALS in July, 2019. Thanks, Jesse. And being inspired by the inaugural Lou Gehrig Day, Jesse and I decided to use the first part of today's podcast to share a little bit about Lou Gehrig, the person, in his final full season, with some suggest was his best season of all time, as that was the season that he started to show the signs that we're all too familiar with related to ALS. Now, the second part of our podcast, we are going to welcome Ellen Phillips and Tony Heil to our show. Ellen is the chair emeritus of the ALS Association's Greater Philadelphia Chapter and has been tirelessly involved with their ALS community since 1983. It's Ellen's leadership and promotion that has been instrumental in connecting our hometown Philadelphia Phillies to the ALS community. Also joining us is Tony Heil, and Tony is the chapter's director of communications and public uh, public policy. Tony and Ellen work together to improve the quality of life for the ALS community in the greater Philadelphia region. And an exciting aspect of this work is working with the Phillies and connecting them to the ALS community. So with that in mind, why don't we go ahead and get started and let's talk about Lou Gehrig. So Jesse, how familiar with Lou Gehrig were you before the podcast? Well, that's a good question. Honestly, I knew very little, if anything. Um, I liked baseball and I knew he in some way was connected to baseball and ALS, but I didn't know. Um, I, I really did not know anything about him. Um, so this was sort of a fun project to get, dig our hands into a little bit. Um, I remember when I first started working, um, with the ALS clinics and the ALS association, you know, people asking, you know, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, right? When, when you say ALS, I think that's the next thing people say. Um, 
So, you know, I know in talking with you, we thought let's dig in a little bit to find out who was he, you know, we know he was a baseball player. We know he was famous for a lot of things. Um, but who was sort of the person behind the name that everybody knows? Um, so, so yes, to answer the long and short of it is I knew very little. <laughs> right. And that doesn't surprise me. I think, you know, unless you're a baseball fan, especially considering that Lou Gehrig played, you know, a hundred years ago, I think his first game with the Yankees, um, first game where he played with the Yankees, I think was uh, uh, May 1st, 1925. So what's that? 80, 90, you know, almost a hundred years ago, unless you're really a fan of the game. I think a lot of people probably only know Lou Gehrig from Lou Gehrig's disease and maybe not sure what that refers to Mm -hmm. or people may know ALS, but don't really associated with Lou Gehrig. Um, But for myself, I've been very familiar with Lou uh, over the years because I'm a a big baseball fan. Um, Years ago, the Yankees were my team. So I was uh, certainly not old enough to be around when he played. But, you know, I read the history and statistics and all that. So I was very familiar with with Lou Gehrig. But as you were saying, not – not so much about Lou Gehrig, the the person. I knew Lou Gehrig more as the baseball player, the statistics, part of Murderer's Row, the Yankees, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's been a it, it's been fun kind of digging in and finding out a little bit um, more about Lou um, than I otherwise knew. You know, going into the podcast here. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think um, what's been especially exciting for me about this is, you know, he was not around at a time where he, you know, now with social media and, you know, everybody, I feel like the big stars, sports stars are just more accessible to people. Um, and their personality is able to show out in, in some different ways. I think now with, with instant access to things like that, but back then, you know, that wasn't what, you know, people, people didn't have that information, you know, they didn't have Instagram accounts and Facebook accounts. And it was just, you know, what people heard on the radio about the stats and interviews and things like that. And so the book that, you know, so for our listeners, what Lenny and I did was we, we both read two different books, um, about Luke Gary and then, um, you know, sort of summarize them together. And the book I read um, is called The Lost Memoir, and it's by um, Alan D. Gaff. It's a biographical essay. Um, And what's fun is the first part of the book are actually, um, they're chronicles from the Oakland Tribune, which was a newspaper at the time um, in 19, you know, in the 1920s, um, that Lou Gehrig's, um, I think it was his agent, Christy Walsh, who was also the agent for Babe Ruth, (laughs) um, had convinced Lou to write a series, a weekly series into the newspaper, the Oakland Tribune about, um, and the title of it was following the babe. So sort of his Lou's interpretation and experience of, of, you know, following sort of in the footsteps of this, of the Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig sort of 
competition, you know, competition that they had. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, it really felt like the step back in time. Um, and I think some of the biggest things that I, I took away from learning about who he was through his words, which I think is what's really kind of unique about it, um, was he talks a lot about growing up. And I didn't realize this, but he comes from an immigrant immigrant family, uh, grew up in Harlem, um, had, you know, a lot of experiences that I think we can all relate to just as, you know, people growing up in the world of traumas. And um, he, he had a, all his siblings passed away. He had four or five siblings and he was the only surviving sibling, which I think is really sort of something that you don't hear today. Um, I know that impacted him. And he talks a lot about actually his own body image and, and being called, being ridiculed for, you know, being overweight as a kid, which now, I mean, the iron horse, right. You would never connect those two. Um, so I, I, you know, his writings about that time and how, how much that shaped sort of who he became as a person, I think speaks a lot to the um, sort of softness underneath the iron horse. Right. Thing, you know? Yeah. And he uh, came from a, I think it was um, a German family, right? Yes. They had immigrated into the United States and he was very much um, in, in the book that you read as well as the one I read, which was more about his baseball season, but it was called The Last Ride of the Iron Horse by Dan Joseph. Um, he was very much a mama's boy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very um, close to his mother, not as much to his father, um, but his mother was really, really the matriarch of the family. And she worked tirelessly for the family. And he um, really hung around, you know, at her, um, at her, at her hem, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, doing, you know, helping her work, you know, and she, you know, she, uh, did, did laundry. She did, you know, she was a little bit of a seamstress and, and she, she cooked, uh, meals for people and, you know, his memories of that have, are of, you know, how hard she worked. And he was very much, very much a mama's boy. Um, and, um, I think also back to your point about, um, today's social media, you know, back during Lou Gehrig's playing days and and that period of time, you know, I think that we'd all would think that it's, was probably a much more innocent period of time compared to um, some of the challenges that we are going through of there are um, current events that we're going through now, as well as, you know, over the last few decades. Um, But he was a real humble person. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of interesting the juxtapose of Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth, because Babe Ruth was really bombastic, larger than life, mm-hmm. and Lou Gehrig was much happier, being quiet. You know, once again, following Babe, and you know, whereas Babe would go out and spend the night out in the whole evening and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, Lou Gehrig was much more inclined to spend the time with his wife Eleanor or go fishing or just spend time in the clubhouse playing cards with folks. So they, they were very different in personalities, mm-hmm. but they were um, 
they were close. They did have a falling out at one point, but they basically made up and, uh, you know, were relatively um, really close friends um, throughout his uh, playing career. But they're very different personalities. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting? Like, I feel like reading reading his his descriptions of meeting Babe for the first time, being the new kid on the team. Um, you know, he went to Columbia for college and he, you know, he played at Columbia and, um, you know, then he was brought up to the Yankees and he actually, I think he only played a couple, not even a full season. And then they, um, he was asked to sort of step down to the minor leagues because they realized he like was incredibly talented, but he just needed that sort of um, conditioning and that, that skill set and to actually play, you know, to play in the minors. Um, but he talked, you know, and then he was brought back up to the team, but he talks about um, meeting Babe Ruth for the first time. And I have this quote from the book where he says, you know, Babe said, Hey, kid. And he said, if you ever heard the gruff, but kindly voice of this big overgrown kid, you will appreciate that his greeting meant to me. I shook his hand. I wanted to say something, but I couldn't think of anything to say. So I just stood there and stared. <laughs> right. I just like picture this like young kid, like, you know, in the locker room, surrounded by these greats and just sort of like starstruck, you know? And I think that starstruckness um, is what is, like you said, it's just incredibly humble and, um, it sort of feels like he's just, he's as big of a fan of his teammates and players as, as every person in that stand, you know, um, which I appreciated hearing that part. Oh yeah. They, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig loved the game and, and he was humbled by those types of experiences and little would people know that when he, I think he came up finally for the, uh, for, uh, to start his career, relatively start his, his career at the, the Yankees. I think he came up in May of 1925. And then on June 1st, 1925 was the beginning of his consecutive game streak of 2,130 games. You know, that lasted from June 1925 to 30, the 30th of April of 1939. And that's what nicknamed him the iron horse, but from those real humble beginnings, um, and yeah, he had, he had success. I mean, you know, back then, you know, even to get noticed by major league teams and don't forget, there was only eight teams back then. So, you know, it wasn't like um, they had the extensive number of teams that they have th- this day. I never um, knew that. That's yeah. There was only, yeah. yeah, there was only eight, eight teams in the, um, in, in the American league. So I yeah. guess a total of 16 with the American league and the national league, but still uh, much less than what we have today. Plus, you didn't have the opportunity, the ease of travel that you have today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you really had to stand out to get somebody's attention. And I think Lou was a, uh, essentially was a three-sport star, I believe, growing up. But, you know, baseball, mm-hmm. and the other was football. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other one was um, maybe track and field, um, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why he went to Columbia. Um, but he only went there for a year and then the Yankees saw him and he, and he signed with the Yankees. But for those humble beginnings, 
you know, who would have thought at that point that he would end up playing for 2,130 games, which is a phenomenal record. And that wasn't broken until I believe it was 1995 uh, by uh, Cal Ripken of the the Orioles. And, um, you know, he truly was uh, uh, an amazing, an amazing athlete and, and somebody that a lot of people, you know, rightly so looked up to. And he, and he was, he was considered a hero, Um, you know, back at that point, um, probably much more so today, you know, just because of, um, you know, I think, uh, 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 you know, there, there wasn't as, like you said, as much social media and there weren't, there wasn't as many other activities for people to get interested in, but mm-hmm. baseball really was the pastime, America's mm-hmm. pastime. Mm-hmm. And Luke Gehrig was somebody that, you know, people did look up, uh, did look up to and, uh, and, and deservedly so, mm-hmm. deservedly so. Yeah. You know, and kind of turning to the book I read, um, as I said, it was called The Last Ride of the Iron Horse by Dan Joseph. You know, Lou Gehrig had a tremendous, um, a tremendous career that spanned from, as I said, 1925 to uh, 1939. And, and some people say, though, that his best year ever was 1938. So that was the year just before um, he retired. And the reason they say that, and I guess the statistics for 1938, Lou Gehrig hit 295 and he had 29 home runs. I believe he had 114 RBIs and he had a um, uh, on-base percentage plus slugging number of 932, which for people that that follow baseball, that's a, a really good number and something that, um, you know, a lot of players in today's game aspire to. I mean, it's just, you know, by all, by all measures of statistics, he had a great year in 1938, but it was well below what he was capable of doing. And many people say that that was because of ALS. So in June of 1939, he was diagnosed with ALS, which meant as those of us that have ALS and been living with ALS, you know that being diagnosed with ALS, that is not when the first signs of ALS have occurred, you know, and it could be a year, a year and a half, two years prior to then, or three years prior to then, before you start realizing that something that you attributed to some other type of ailment, you know, uh, such, you know, just being clumsy. And, you know, the furthest thing from your mind would be a neurological disorder, let alone ALS. But, you know, it's those those insidious signs that occur well before you're diagnosed. And it, it, it does make things difficult. So if you consider for Lou Gehrig playing in a major league level, being diagnosed in June of 1939, meaning that in 38 he showed signs and to do what he did, play all the games win a World Series title with the Yankees. He was selected to the AO All-Star team, albeit it was controversial, but nonetheless, he did make the All-Star team. But to go through that and to accomplish what he did in 38, even though at that point, his peers 
were able to see that he wasn't as fast. He wasn't as, as nimble. Um, mm -hmm. He would swing the bat, but he didn't have the strength behind it that he had before, um, you know, in the field, fielding ground balls and, and even just thrown balls. He just didn't have the agility um, and the reflexes that he had. So this was all evident to, to people that um, both his peers as well as sportscasters and sports writers, people that really watch the game day in and day out, that maybe the normal fan wouldn't necessarily have seen, although there was a lot of, um, you know, complaining about, you know, his statistics being down and he was getting old. But it wasn't that he was getting old. Right. He was being attacked by ALS. Right. And to go through that and still have his accomplishment, that's why some people say that, you know, his greatest season was 1938, you know, when he was um, fighting through, unknowingly fighting through the neurological disorders and the symptoms okay. that, you know, we ultimately find out uh, were related to, uh, were due to ALS. And, you know what, Lenny, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how that is, you know, I think his example of it is, you know, failing, right? He's, he's, he's noticing his body is starting to fail, but not sure why, and not able to understand sort of what's happening to his body. And that's exactly like you said, like that is exactly what when folks are diagnosed today, they're saying this isn't working right. Something's not working right. You know, and, and you had shared with me, you were a softball player and like you were playing and noticing something's like something's off or we have, you know, there's lots of folks who are golfing and realize something's not right here. You know, there's something off here. My body's not going the right, you know? So I can only imagine in the sphere of exactly like you said, like he's, he's at this sort of peak and, you know, breaking records, hitting these statistics. And yet I, I can only imagine how emotionally and mentally tough that is to then be sort of told it's your fault <laughs> that you're not oh. meeting those goals, you know? Well, that, that, that's right. I mean, he had, he went through streaks that year of 1938. He went through periods where he was you know, from baseball statistics, he was putrid. He just wasn't good and he didn't understand it. Yeah. You know, he'd say, I'd see the ball. I swing the bat, but the power isn't behind the, the swing. Yeah. I'm out there in the field. You know, I feel like I'm, um, I'm standing still when I'm running. And it's, you know, it's frustrating because you don't know what it is. Because, I mean, I remember myself, you know, we're trying to figure out what was going on with me. Yeah. And I remember one of the last visits I had with my doctor before I, went to my primary care before I went to a neurologist was I, I finally told him, I said, listen, I don't know what it is, but something's not right. And that's the way he was, you know, he couldn't put his finger on it. Mm -hmm. You know, he, um, and then of course, when they went into the spring training of 1939 and the start of the season in 1939 as the Yankees first baseman, he was basically playing early on, um, you know, based on the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the prowess of his previous years, but finally, you know, when he, I think the time that they sat him down his consecutive game streak, uh, was ended, he was hitting like uh, 114 or something. It, it, it was really dismal. Mm -hmm. 
And um, that, I mean, that had to have been so frustrating for him, mm-hmm. you know, and it was because he wanted to perform. He wanted to earn the money. I mean, he was the highest paid player at that time in uh, Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he didn't feel right taking the money. He didn't feel right not performing up to his expectations toward those of the fans. But, you know, at that time, you know, nobody knew what it was. And then obviously it wasn't until, um, you know, the middle of June when he was um, diagnosed with ALS and then subsequently retired at the end of June. So it had to have been extremely frustrating for him. I mean, it, and it's, once again, for those of us that have, that have ALS or are living with somebody that's had it, um, it's those little signs. And he had the same thing, you know, not being able to, to necessarily hold a coffee cup or, or uh, stumbling over a curb. Those types of things happen. And the other interesting thing I wanted, and this is a little off baseball, but it's, and there's been a, a, a fair amount of research when people have gone back to try to see what kind of signs he exhibited mm-hmm. during his baseball career. But in the off season of 1939, through his agent, Christy Walsh, he, ups, he actually starred in a movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, he went out to California and he made a Western um, starring himself and it was called Rawhide. Mm-hmm. And it was about, um, about him, Lou Gehrig, retiring and going out West. And I think it was uh, to raise horses and, you know, so forth and so on. It's a Western where there's good guys and bad guys and he's, he's a good guy, but yeah, researchers have gone back and looked at that uh, movie mm-hmm. and um, said that they saw signs of ALS as he was, you know, doing um, some of the stunts associated with the movie. Now, whether or not that's true, I thought that was a little, a little far-fetched. They, some of the, the evidence that they gave was the way he got up out of a chair the way he rode a horse, he had, he had to learn how to ride a horse. So the way that he, he rode the horse showed some evidence. But um, as I said, I think that uh, um, I think there's not quite as much stock put into to those you know pieces of potential evidence as it is um, just his you know the way that he performed in 1938 as a, you know as a, a baseball player, um, which. Like I said, if you think about it, it really is remarkable that he was still able to play every game in 1938. Incredible. Yeah. It is incredible when you consider also mm-hmm. that, you know, it was nothing like today's athletes are treated. You know, right. it, you know, they weren't <laughs> you know, PT on the sideline giving you uh, Exactly. I mean, it it was just a completely different routine. So you had the rigors of traveling Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it was, and also back then, another interesting piece was, um, or piece of information is back then double headers were quite common. Mm. And um, there was in 1938, they had several rainouts. The Yankees did. I think it was towards the beginning of the season. And um, no, I think it was the end. But anyways, it it actually came at an opportunity to give Lou Gehrig an opportunity to recover. He had hurt himself a minor injury playing ball. So he recovered from that. But I think 
over the span of six or seven or eight days or something, the Yankees played four double headers. So mm-hmm. when, you, when you put that in perspective too, right. with his body starting to break down and how it just makes you tiresome to play back-to-back baseball games, yeah, you know, a minimum of 18 innings, you know, not to say that some of the games didn't go into, um, into extra innings, but it really does put in perspective what kind of a, a baseball player athlete he was and how determined he was yeah. that, that he just kept going. And, and also how much confidence he had himself that, that I'll, I'll eventually shake off whatever's, whatever's ailing me. I'll get it right. I'll get it right. And he did have periods, mm-hmm. you know, in August, I believe over two or three weeks where he, you know, banged out like seven home runs hit in the high three hundreds had a bunch of RBIs. Um, but then all of a sudden, you know, he went back down. And um, another interesting thing that I learned was that with ALS, I guess they, there is some evidence that um, you, um, during a certain period of time, it is possible for patients to, um, for the ALS symptoms to somewhat subside and that your, your strength and uh, your coordination and stuff show improvement, um, you know, sort of goes into remission, if you will. And so they're thinking that, you know, this uh, particular stretch in August for Lou Gehrig, that maybe the ALS went into um, remission, um, but then, if, you know, it doesn't go away. It came right back. But yeah, truly, truly remarkable uh, for what he did in um, 1938, knowing that um, ALS at that point had, in fact, you know, was manifesting itself, you know, through his, um, you know, what he was doing. Yeah, Lenny, you were talking just about this level of like a sort of immortality, right, that he had in the sport. And I found this this just quote in the book that I had read um, that says he, you know, was noted for his strength, his stamina, and he resonated with fans on an unusually personal level. And he in the words of Jack Sure, they say he was immortal because somehow he managed to touch himself in the heart of everyone who heard his name. And I think that that is so telling to kind of this, this mix of, you know, this doing what he did with the sport and just excelling at this level that is just, you know, just Galicia and all. And then also on the other side, having this human level kindness and humbleness that, um, you know, I think there's a lot to the, his name that we can see today in so many of our folks, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, what an incredible life, you know, and, and in, in a short life, I mean, he it just, it's, it's amazing how much he did in, in the time that he had, you know? Yeah. He, um, you know, as I said, he started his consecutive game streak on the 1st of June, 1925. Mm -hmm. And then the very next day, the 2nd of June was the first day that he was a starter with the Yankees. That's when he, um, started for Wally Pip, um, you know, a name that a lot of other, a lot of baseball fans know, Mm -hmm. um, because Lou Gehrig took his job. And Lou Gehrig did not relinquish that job until the thir- until 
the 30th of April, 1939, which is when he played his last game. And once again, 2,130 days, 2,130 games um, playing streak. And then um, you know, Lou was diagnosed with ALS in June of 1939, and he retired on the 21st of June of 1939. And then Lou did pass on June 2nd, 1941. So essentially two years after being diagnosed at the age of 37, like you said, he was relatively young. You know, so at the age of 37, and I always found some kind of irony there that June 2nd, mm-hmm. 1925, so 16 years earlier, that was when he uh, started. That was the first game that he started for the Yankees at the beginning of his consecutive game streak. So I don't know if there's some symmetry there, underlying symmetry, or just a coincidence. I, I, I think it's more than just a coincidence myself, but that may be me just being a little romanticizing it. Um, but one thing that um, I think one aspect of this couple year period was that on July 4th of 1939, the Yankees held a Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. And that was in front of a sold out crowd at Yankee Stadium, which then would have been over 60,000 people. And that was um, when Lou Gehrig gave his iconic luckiest man on earth speech. And we like to wrap up our discussion on Lou Gehrig by sharing with our listeners Lou Gehrig's speech. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jesse. It does it does um, give me goosebumps listening to that. And Lou is truly a remarkable man. And I think we would all agree that it's only fitting that Major League Baseball commemorate the man and his accomplishments. And that will be on June 2nd of this year and every year thereafter. And with that, I'd like to transition to our discussion with Ellen and Tony and welcoming them to our podcast as we continue to talk a little bit about the relationship between baseball and the ALS community, and in particular, our hometown Philadelphia Phillies. 
And Lenny and I are rocking our Philly shirts right now. You can't see it, but we got them on. <laughs> yes, we do. We're, we're, we're wearing the colors. We're wearing the colors. Feeling the, feeling the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll, we'll be back with, uh, with Alan and Tony. Bye. Bye. Okay, welcome Ellen and Tony. For our listeners, Ellen Phillips is the Chair Emeritus of the ALS Association's Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Also joining us is Tony Heil, who is Director of Communications and Public Policy for the Chapter. Welcome to both and thank you so much for joining us to talk about something we all know and love, baseball, and especially its connection to the ALS community. Welcome guys. Thank you. you. (laughs) Glad to be here. So, um, Ellen, we know that you've been involved with the chapter since 1983. Is that right? That's what Um, they tell me. I was so young, I don't even remember. (laughs) Holy cow, that's right. Um, and over those years, you've had a lot of different roles, worn a lot of different hats. Um, Can you share with us your story? about um i know it's it's you know we could go on and on but just in a nutshell like how did you get connected to als association i know you have a personal connection just tell us a little bit about how you got here i got here because in the at the uh in the fall of 1982 my husband alan who was 34 at the time um was a lawyer and he played in the lawyers league basketball league um, and also the lawyers league baseball league. And that summer he was always their best hitter. And that summer I watched as he, he progressed and, um, and he had to change positions because he couldn't throw the ball into the uh, infield. And then the next season um, was basketball. And I distinctly remember three weeks in a row, he came back and said the first time he said he didn't score any points. The second time he said he couldn't reach the rim when he shot. And the third time he uh, couldn't get his hands over his head to shoot. Um, we went looking for help. We didn't know where to go, orthopedist or neurologist. Um, Not that many people were familiar with ALS at that time, and we didn't know what it was uh, at all. Uh, We weren't even thinking about that. Uh, So then um, we found someone, I believe it was Pennsylvania Hospital, who um, did some tests and a workup. And um, this was right around Christmas, New Year's Eve. And he tells my husband that he has a motor neuron disease. And I said, um, or, and he might've also said amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So Alan said, do you mean Lou Gehrig's disease? And he said, yes. That was the end of the conversation, and he sent us on our way by saying Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, which 
you know, I guess what else was he going to say? So we were in shock. I like ran to a library to get a children's book, landmark book on Lou Gehrig, just so I could read what happened. And I read like the last chapter. I mean, I knew about, been a baseball fan since I was six. So I, I knew about the speech. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know the circumstances. And from there, um, we went to try to find a chapter or anybody involved with ALS. And we we found someone gave us a number and it was an answering machine that was in a patient's uh, where he worked. But unfortunately, the man had died Mm. and nobody was answering the phone. Um, Not 100 percent sure how we got to the chapter someone reached out to somebody and um my parents got very involved uh they formed a philadelphia friends of als which was just fundraising with another couple howard abrams and terry abrams and howard had als and had many many contacts and so they went their separate ways in fundraising and um by December of uh, 82, might have been 83, I can't remember what happens. Um, in eight, in one of those years, I'm sorry, it's just, uh, I know what happened, I just don't know when, the woman who was president of the chapter board knocked on my door and said, um, my husband's being transferred to Indochina and I can't be president of the board anymore. Would you would you like to take it over? I was like, no, I would not like to take it over. I have a husband and a toddler. I don't think that's something I've been pining for. Um, so then um, Alan died in 84. Um, he his his um, symptoms were traditional in terms of loss of speech, loss of movement. And um, I'm, going, I'm going back and forth, but he did get the very first iteration of uh, what was called then a talking computer. Mm-hmm. And it came in a box and we called the salesperson and said, what do we do with this? And he said, I don't know. And it was from Words Plus. That was the name of the company back then. And um, I think that the head, the person who identified, who discovered it and put it together actually came to our house. But it was just way too, it wasn't too sophisticated for my husband because he's very smart, but it was just overwhelming. He, he could communicate. And so he ended up using um, an iBoard. Um, I still have it in my garage where you stare at the letters and and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one of the many things, um, my mantra was no gloom and doom in this house. We just cannot have that. We had our, our daughter was... Um, was born in 1981. So in 82, when Alan was diagnosed, she was one one year old. 
And so we did a lot of activities. We, Alan had an electric wheelchair. We, I got a station wagon so I could transfer the wheelchair. We went to the zoo. We went for walks. We went everywhere we possibly could as trying to keep normalcy. Um, And then he was progressing and progressing. And um, then he um, had to make a decision about a ventilator. And his brother um, was living in, they're from Philadelphia, but his brother had graduated uh, Jefferson Medical School and was um, very helpful in looking into anything. Um, Alan went to Massachusetts to try a, um, a drug that was supposed to help. And he called me from the from the uh, hospital there and said, did I hear any difference in his voice? And I'm like, if the people standing right next to you can't, then, you know, I, I, I certainly I can't. And so and then we I, guess, I think my dad took him to a, a Canada for nutritional consult. Very similar stories, just there's more things to try now. And um, he died um, in September of 1984. And that was when Dorothea Bear, who was the president, came back again and asked me if I would be the president. And I said, look, I honestly don't know what that means. And um, if I can stay with my daughter and do what I think should be done, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I said, but it doesn't seem like there's an outline here. I also was mentioned, like I mentioned, sending out notices. I realized nobody got any notices. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I started from scratch. My parents and the Abrams started this Philadelphia Friends, and that took off. Mm-hmm. And this rolls into the Phillies. And I'm happy to go into the Phillies part now or wait. Yeah, we can chat about that a little bit later. I think that uh, it sounds like it, 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 it sounds like you were obviously very visual within the ALS community before you even necessarily became um, involved with the, the chapter itself, certainly before you decided to accept the offer to be president. But it sounds like it was a, a rather loose group of people that um, were all part of that community and had great intentions, but that you were able to actually put some organization to it and 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 some real goals and activities um, to it so that it's grown to what it is today. Is that a fair characterization? I wouldn't give myself that kind of credit because... <laughs> um, there was a couple, and still is, Dottie and Ben Ornstein, who were involved in the chapter before me. They, Their cousin had ALS, and Ben was a lawyer, is a lawyer still, and an accountant, and his wife is a social worker. So they ran support groups out of their house. Um and for a long time, and that, and I went, Alan didn't want to go, but it was very helpful to me, and, and I met a bunch of people, but 
I'd say my parents really helped and the Abrams helped really put the organization together and had a reputation because they knew a lot of high level people in the community and were able to raise money. Whereas we did a mailing and we raised $10,000 and we were ecstatic. Um, That group could get people to write $10,000 checks. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just kind of stayed in my lane and I started to work. Uh, My family has a business and I, when my daughter started kindergarten, I had a little cubicle with an assistant and started working there and hadn't still had my office on the third floor and still have this little slide that my daughter would um, go down and she put stickers all over it. And she was content as long as she was with me. And she still is. <laughs> She's 41. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. And thanks for the the clarification there um and also your modesty but that's uh that's that's really a, a good story and and tony how about um you sharing with us your connection um to the als community and what your role is um in the chapter here so my grandfather had als he was diagnosed in 2005 after he had uh, some symptoms a few months before then and as Ellen knows, and you know, probably Lenny and Jesse know, it takes so long to be diagnosed and with a short lifespan sometimes for people with ALS, you know, that is a very difficult time. So uh, he, my family's from Pittsburgh. I was living out here um, at that time, kind of going back and forth between here and uh, the Philly area and Pittsburgh, and then uh, ended up out here for work for other things. And he passed away in 2007, but it's a very challenging thing to see and so fast for so many people. So my mom has MS and she's had MS for since 1987. And I don't want to take anything with anything away from MS, but it's such a vastly different experience from my grandfather to my mom. And even with my grandmother on my mom's side who had Parkinson's and she lived with it for quite a while too. And there are a lot of treatments available. Uh, So he passed away in 2007 after a very uh, typical, I guess you could say, um, ALS journey because he was uh, older veteran. Veterans are twice as likely to be have ALS, just like Alan, actually. And, uh, you know, so a lot of very typical symptoms and uh, progression for the disease when he passed away in April of 2007. And then a few years later, I was looking at jobs and saw that because my experience was in both communications and um, advocacy and politics and saw that there was an opening here to do not just one of those things, all of the things in my background. Plus it was something I cared about that was very personal to me. And it was like, it was written for me. So I was very excited to come and join the chapter in 2011. So it's been about 10, 11 years I've been here and it's been a very fortunate experience and uh you know, val- valuable experience to be with people who are going through this and help them out and um, empower people with ALS through advocacy, sharing their story, getting in the news, getting in the media and, and getting everything out there and expanding hopefully what Ellen and Ben and the Abrams family and others in the Phillies have helped to create. So 
uh, this chapter has been a lot of building blocks and what one person did when there were a few resources around to create more and more and more to now what we're able to do is very encouraging. And I think to any one of us who knew someone with ALS years ago, we would wish if they had to have ALS that they would have it now as opposed to when they did because of the wide breadth of services available because of all those building blocks coming together. And so I hate to see anyone new come to our chapter because of why they did it, but it is um, encouraging and affirming to work here and know that the, what they're getting today is better than what everyone else left before them. And that's a real good point. I mean, you know, Lou Gehrig passed on, uh, uh, what was it? June 2nd, 1941. So 41, was that 82 years, 80, 81 years ago? And, Still no cure, and at least the, the drug that I take, Rylazol, I think clinically is shown to extend lifespan statistically by only about an additional three months. But one thing that is much more much more widely known and, and, and available is that first of all, ALS is it's it's recognized. It's not something that you know people are more familiar with it. Um, and the medical community in particular um, now at least has a way of, of diagnosing it or at least ruling out other potential um, ailments. But it's the, it's the, the palliative care um, that, that's available now and the management tools and organizations such as the uh, Association of Greater Philadelphia Area that, that help those afflicted with ALS and not just the community or not just the, the patients, but the caregivers, try to, as, as you had mentioned the word before, Ellen, add some normalcy to the life, to your life, particularly when you're first diagnosed, when you realize that you've got to compress time a little bit and maybe get some more things done than you otherwise wouldn't have done. So that's what I, that, that's, that's something that, that makes me happy. Obviously, a cure would be better. But I think the big difference has been that people can um, experience a lot more in the way of a quality of life now than certainly they could, uh, you know, back when, when Alan was diagnosed, you know, when the, the doctor said, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Right. Like, well, wait a second. You just told me I had a terminal disease. Right. You know what I mean? Come on, let's get real about this, you know? And that's the thing I think, like, like exactly like you said, Tony, that, um, you know, hopefully today, no family calls a number that has no answer and there's nobody there, right? You know, that's what I think was so incredible about this organization. And that exactly like you said, you leave the doctor's office and then we hope to be this like soft landing place of just like, here we are, you know, what can we do next? We're here to help. Um, and it's, it's amazing. It really is amazing. And I think that lived experience, like both of you have shared or all three of you, um, make such a difference in the care, you know? And, and to your point, Jesse, it means a lot knowing that like you're here because, you know, we had someone else leave the chapter from your clinic area who did their, most of your job. And when they're looking and you worked already with ALS, now you're here. And so many people who come to us have had some sort of experience uh, and uh, to Ellen's point about the gruff demeanor that a lot of doctors have had, and it's not like that's all gone away. And, you know, 
we've seen TV shows or other things. But I think that there are a lot of people on our care team who have a good sensibility. So they understand the technical things to do. But more importantly, they know how to talk to people with kindness and respect. And I also, I was just in Harrisburg doing advocacy. And I think it's a real source of pride for all of us here that throughout the pandemic, not only did we maintain all of our services as well as we could, um, but we did not lose our care team. We continued if anything, they were doing more work than before. And when I talk to people, um, legislators and others, I think that they're all surprised when they hear that, but it's true. And that result, that's because of the dedication of the people who come here. And it's, it's very rewarding to be part of that. And, and to that point, you know, when the pandemic started, you know, 2019, January, February, March, whatever time you want to put it on, or even earlier. 2020. But, yeah, 2020. Longer than it had to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, 2020. Um, but I'll be honest with you, and I, I know I, I, I speak for probably many people with ALS. It scared the hell out of me mm-hmm. because it was like no matter, you know, first of all, you know, us in the community are fighting, you know, to, to and, and, and I don't think it's overly dramatic to say this, but fighting to stay alive and live, maybe fighting to live. And then this something that's completely out of your control comes out of left field. And now you're isolating yourself as best you can. So all those quality of life things that we talked about now get shrunk down. But my point being, having the ALS support community, the association, the people at the clinic I went to go to at Lehigh Valley Hospital, folks like Jesse, and then those at the association like Wendy Barnes, you know, just recently left and moved on down to South Carolina. It, it, it meant the world to us that somebody understood, you know, that the fears that we had weren't necessarily, weren't irrational. And, and I'm not, you know, not looking for sympathy, but it was nice to have somebody that, that at least had empathy. And, and that is so, so important. And that's what you were saying, Tony, is that they know how to, to deal with and speak to, you know, those of us with ALS and not to diminish the fact that I took a shower today and I got to rest for a couple hours before I get, before I move on. And that just means, means the world. Cause it's just that affirmation that, you know, in my case, Lenny, you're not nuts. You're not lazy. It's just the way it is. So just go with it and do the best you can. So, so my hats off to the folks that kept those communications and contacts going. Well, yes, we, it's been, it's been a ride, right? And who knows what's, what's just, we're coming to what's coming down the pipe, but we do know for sure that we have some happy news with the um, coming on the cusp of spring, right? We're starting to see some flowers out there, sort of <laughs> uh, baseball, something we all know and love, um, we are getting closer, right? To starting to see some baseball and Um, you know, one of the things that Lenny and I have talked about, you know, at length, you know, recently with doing some research for this podcast was, um, just how much baseball is this sort of universe, you know, universal thing that just connects us all is sports in general. But I feel like, especially here in the States, it's just baseball seems to be this, like more than just a game, you know, it's like a community and, um, 
just a sport that can connect so many people. And we, you know, he and I were sharing stories of us growing up as kids. And I remember my grandmother who lived with us at the time, we would be watching the Phillies downstairs on TV. Chase Utley was her favorite player, but she would stay up in her room and take to listen to it on the radio and be taking stats down. And she would have her piles and piles of newspapers with the stats, even though all of us were gathered downstairs, like that was just her thing, listening to it on the radio. Cause she grew up doing that. Um, and I know Lenny had shared some stories about, you know, him playing growing up as a kid. And um, so what does baseball mean to you guys? If you don't mind me asking just about, you know, what, what does it mean to you? Well, My association with baseball began in about 1956. Uh, the Phillies only were on television on Sundays. And my brother and father would uh, watch the game and we could not go to dinner until baseball game was over. <laughs> and I was always hungry. <laughs> so to distract myself, I watched the games. And that is how I became a fan. So much so that when I got a little older and went to overnight camp, I was sent in the mail the box scores <laughs> of the Phillies so I could keep up with them. And a friend of my parents had season tickets at Connie Mack Stadium, like right on, by the first by the first base bag. And I went to all the many games. I could go to a complete series of games with him because he had three daughters and they didn't want to go. But Ellen did. Um, so that love <laughs> has kept me going. Um, forever. And uh, it's just ironic that we were fortunate enough to be able to reach out to the Phillies and they listened and understood. Alan was still alive at that point and Amy was running around like crazy <laughs> and they were very interested in helping. So what does that look like? Okay, so my mom was a force and uh, she believed, and she's right, and it's, she's been proven right, ALS belongs in baseball. That's what she said constantly. And she went down to Baltimore because she, someone knew uh, the agent of one of the players and he said, sorry, can't help you. She went to New York to the Yankees and she will never have gotten over this. They wouldn't even give her a cup of coffee. <laughs> so then she's, she kept telling people, I need that she needed a contact with the Phillies. Who knew anybody at the Phillies? And as it turned out, my cousin, uh, Ricky, lived, uh, lived, <laughs> lived near a dog that visited her, went down the hill from the top of the hill, from someone's house on top of the hill, down to her hill, down to her house. And she would look at the tag and she'd call the people and say, could this be your dog that comes to visit me all the time? Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, we'll come and get it. 
And it turned out that that dog belonged to Nancy and Bill Giles. I mean, what are the chances that that's going to happen? The owner of the Phillies. And then my cousin had the opportunity to talk to Bill and Nancy about ALS and our story. And simultaneously, um, there was an article in the newspaper on a Sunday, I believe, in 1982 or three, three, I'm going to say, and I'm going to show you the picture that was with the article. Let me know if you could see this. So uh, that's Alan and Amy and me before my makeover. (laughs) (laughs) And so this was in the paper. And and um, my cousin asked Nancy if, she, if my mother could call her. My mother told Nancy the story. Nancy had seen this article. And Nancy said, love to meet you. Nancy went over to my mother's house. They shook hands when they, she entered. They hugged when she left. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting with my mother and... Bill Giles, Dave Montgomery, and a whole bunch of other Phillies community people, um, and a woman who headed up the national organization, were sitting in Bill's office with big Mike, a huge Mike Schmidt painting and a Pete Rose painting. And I tried not to act like a fan, like. And um, the first thing, he, well, he, we had a we had a great rapport, and. Uh, after he explained why we couldn't be the Phillies charities, because he didn't want to have get people upset by being the Phillies charities. Nobody was the head of the was the Phillies charity, um, but we could be the charity of the Phillies wives. And his rationale was, you've got the Phillies wives, you got the players. <laughs> and so in 19... 19- July 1984, uh, they had their very first fundraiser. It was a dinner and a fashion show. And I always characterize it as the players looked they were like they were having their last supper <laughs> as they walked out on the uh, down the aisle of the fashion show, all dressed up. The wives <laughs> were dancing all around them. <laughs> And it was quite hilarious. Um, but they got to know a little bit about ALS. And it was at that uh, event that you can see this photo of Lou Gehrig behind me. It was autographed by all the 1984 team and presented. Alan could not go to the event. It was it was um, July and he died in September. Um, he was he was very sick. So I've always had that with me. And um, and the relationship grew. Nancy and my mom got close and Nancy and I got very, very close and um, had a personal friendship. And uh, and that happened with many of the people who worked at the Phillies. They were very respectful they they knew that the owner this was important to the owner and um 
and Dave Montgomery, who was his lieutenant and then became president, and their wives, um, Lynn Montgomery, Sherry Clothier, the treasurer's wife. Um, and there's still a Phillies Wives organization. And now there's a Phillies Charities organization, um, which every year gives grants to about 30 new charities that they welcome into the under the umbrella. And we grew because when I we had an event at Macy's where we got paid for each celebrity we brought and we Tug McGraw went and I think Kurt Schilling went and a whole bunch of team members and we got paid what they would get paid for an appearance. And I remember wearing my, we had ALS pins back then, red pins, old lettering and Someone asked me about it. I said, um, you know, ALS Association. She said, you're the Phillies charities, aren't you? And then I realized how, what a gift this was because people wanted to join what the Phillies were doing. And they loved meeting the players. Um, They loved helping people. And so that's how uh, we went from the dinner and fashion show. Bill Giles and Dave Montgomery went across Broad Street and watched the Flyers Carnival. And they said, we've got to do something like this. And that's how the Phillies Autograph Party and Auction, now known as the Phillies Festival, got started. And we went from 28,000 to, in 2019, the festival raised $760,000. Now that wasn't all in a night. That included sponsors. It's a it's a full time job just to raise money for from the festival and put together a book. And it's not just one person who does that. So uh, they have stayed with us from since 1984 was when it was official. And we just had a meeting today, and they are so, uh, the, their staff. The person who's our contact has been there since probably 84, I, I don't want to ask him how old he is, but I know him quite well. <laughs> it's been a while. He looks we know he's at least, so do I. Um, he's at least 48. So, so they care so much about us and our patients, they, they, they love them. They just love them. They ask about them. They'll give them tickets to a game. We'll get you, Lenny. (laughs) And they can't do enough. Well, I think to put this in perspective um, financially, those listening to this, because I did a little research in preparation for the podcast. And uh, just with my, you know, I mean, I love the Philly. That's, That's the team I follow. I dug a little deeper. But if I added things up correctly, the Phillies, um, have raised about $20 million um, towards uh, ALS research, ALS, you know, basically community, um, you know, support to the ALS community. And, 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 and that's a, that's a nice piece of change that, that is, that is a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, cause when you consider there are so many worthwhile charities out there, so many worthwhile causes and ALS, you know, honestly, is just one of them. And it's a rare disease. It's not a, not a whole lot of people are affected by it. But to have it acknowledged and to raise that kind of money is it's just a, 
it's it's phenomenal, you know, in my opinion. It is, and we could not do it without them. Never, and, never, never. And Tony, can you uh, picking up on that thread? Could you um, elaborate? You know, with your experiences, I guess the GFAT since uh, what is it, twenty oh six when you joined the association, and you know how important that uh, that you've seen that Phillies connection is uh, to the members of the chapter that that and as and maybe even those that you advocate with um, state legislators but that relationship that the Phillies have with the ALS community. Well, one thing Ellen has said many times is that the Phillies relationship has given our chapter and the ALS cause so much credibility. So while they rightly can tout that they've raised $20 million, the impact is millions more, not just here. I mean, we are the prime beneficiaries of it as a chapter, but it goes beyond. And it's like the building blocks of success for the chapter and uh, understanding of ALS before the, uh, the Phillies in the eighties and into the nineties, the, the contributions they made allowed the chapter to build clinics or create relationships with doctors to invest in research, to have programs like in-home care and um, wheelchair closet and everything like that. And when you have some programs you can go to other donors, you can go to legislators, you can go to others and say, these are things we can kind of start, we can start now because we have support, but if we, you invest more, then we can do more. And it's often easier to get that second dollar than the first dollar. And so, you know, the Phillies, they didn't give us just the first dollar they've given so much. And it allows us to have a launching point to do even more and, and to expand the reach of the chapter so that all 1200 people living with ALS in any given year throughout our territory can get our services, but grow our clinics, have more clinics than we had when I started. Um, and not, not just more clinics, but more quality clinics. They're uh, recognized uh, clinics of excellence, treatment centers of excellence, and the services they're able to provide, the staff they're able to provide. Um, I talk about like in the nineties, the chapter had like three staff and now it's a good bit more than that. And it wouldn't have happened hadn't it not been able to uh, stack on top of each other, all those blocks. And so, you know, when I joined here in 2011, um, the first thing people knew was that's the Phillies charity. They, they knew that before they understood what the, what we did. And that's a good thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't want people to know about ALS all the time because it means that they've experienced it. And that's why we're here. Um, but to have no one else, very few people and organizations can say that and go into a meeting and say that they are the charity connected to a brand and a team as quality as the Phillies. And as Ellen said, it's genuine. They're not just an executive signing a note. Like every one of them there has cried with their families, has hugged them. Uh, the players remember patients. Um, you know, it's a very genuine relationship and you can't, I mean, we, we do put a price tag on it to an extent, but you can't put a price tag on that. And also I'm just thinking about something that, you know, they might never know that the impact that they have, because, you know, in Wendy has, has, in sitting with her over the years prior to her moving and watching her explain to families like who the ALS association is. And, and, and she, you know, so here we are in these clinic visits with new families often who are newly diagnosed and how 
scared every, you know, they're scared, they're scared, they're um, anxious. And, um, you know, she, and I've been trying to adopt her language of, you know, and telling families, you know, who we are. And then there's always this break where she says, you know, um, do you know, you know, the Phillies are your Phillies fan. And then instantly there's this, like, whether, you know, and sometimes we have some Mets fans and sometimes we have some non-Phillies fans, but there's just this instant like softness that happens where you can see like a humanness kind of fall in the room and connect. And, and we talk about baseball, you know? So there we are in, in a visit with families who are just learning this information, talking about baseball and talking about the connection with the Phillies. And um, I, I just think that's something that they might ever even know um, you know, and, and the impact that, that even that small thing, being able to share that story with the new family, what a difference that makes. Um, so that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Um, and Ellen, can you, do your, and Ellen and Tony, do you guys have any, um, inside info for us about like this year, what's, what's happening with the Phillies festival? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. Very timely. <laughs> so um there won't be a festival this year it was supposed to be on the 6th of june however last year was the first now annual lou gehrig day and that is generally on june 2nd which was his birthday um but the phillies are off so they are having it on june Blue Gehrig Day on June 3rd. And they are just, the staff at the Phillies are so jazzed up about this. Um, they had like all different um, VPs from concessions to ticket sales to communications and PR. They all brainstormed. And when you get that kind of brain power, you get <laughs> Lou Gehrig. you get Lou Gehrig Day, <laughs> which has many component components. We just met today. There's pregame elements um, where they're going to uh, show make. There's a very large emphasis on awareness. So there's televisions in the ballpark, and now they're going to have information about ALS throughout the game and any. And there's a 50-50 um, that they have, and that's going to have information on the ticket. They're going to there's there will be interviews. Um, but how are they going to monetize this? Um, since we can't have the festival, they're taking the grab bags that remained about two thousand of them and put them in the concourse for um, that game. Uh, they're also taking, if you've ever been to the festival, they have something called uh, Every Roll's a Winner. They're going to have two of them. Now, this is a game that's going to be going on. Normally, we have the festival and there's no game, but the players are available during the festival for autographs. Obviously, the players are not taking time out to sign autographs because <laughs> there's a baseball game. <laughs> um, but the Phillies have the alumni and they're guiding Mickey Morandini. They hope to have Charlie Manuel, um, maybe Jimmy Rollins, Mike Schmidt. Uh, th this is still being worked out. 
and um, we hope to have sponsorship. We've always had sponsors of the festival and sponsors will have a suite and the patients who come will have a special handicap area where you'll get two tickets and it's all catered and all inclusive to watch the game from the Hall of Fame. And uh, it just goes on and on. They have thought of, looked at it from every angle and they're going to do a lot of awareness um, before it, (laughs) during it and after. And uh, there could be, like I said, 30 to 40,000 people there. Mike Trout is a local boy and quite an athlete and a, and he's Loves Mike it. Trout. He's been around <laughs> a long time, a, a while, and he carries that team. Uh, so we think that this, they, they, of course, you know, we just sat and listened at this. We, we thought of some things of awareness things, but none of the things that they could think of. Um, and we're, we're tickled. And we'll work with them to get sponsors. We'll ask our sponsors, um, all our sponsors from the festival to come back. Um, it's going to be the same price. Uh, no, you can't. We don't have access to the players that, you know, to, that's where you separate the people who love the cause and would give it for nothing, you know, to get nothing. And those who, and I understand this, who say, well, if I'm going to give you this, I, I want something if it's a ball, a signed ball or right. whatever. So they're, they're working, they're working on that. And How cool that you said that they came up with so many of those ideas. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Um, and they've been working on this for quite some time. We had a meeting a month ago where they already presented things that they had thought about. And now this time they flushed it all out and we're, they are used to me because I generally ask for the moon and the stars and they just tell me to calm down. <laughs> so I said, well, usually what we do, they know this, is we have a sponsor's night where the the people who are sponsors get to come for dinner and then carry a sign on the field. Um, and I asked for that and they said, how about just the dinner? <laughs> no on the field. I said, whatever you say. And I understand that. There's and and they are having uh they're having an auction um online and they're gonna have all of the items for viewing there. And I'm sure you can make bids on that as well. Oh, the other thing is they're making a score book, a special score book for this night and we can get sponsor our sponsors you know hopefully big sponsors to uh, um support it and it'll have the story the the story of ALS is is very important to them so that when people leave they he, they said John Weber said we want them to know what ALS is we <laughs> they have to leave there knowing what this is about and i think that's they will that's really good that that awareness because it is a rare disease it doesn't affect that many people you may know Lou Gehrig's disease but I know I, I I just knew that there was a disease I didn't know 
connected with ALS and vice versa. But one thing I will say also with regard to the Phillies, and this is from watching hundreds of Phillies broadcast, is that during the game, and maybe even leading up to it, but at least during the game, the um, the TV team, Tom McCarthy, and I assume it's going to be John Cruck, and I'm not sure what day. Is it a Friday that the celebration is? Yes. Okay, so I was thinking, because on the weekends, Mike Schmidt, Schmidt is yeah. usually commentates. I don't know. But I know Tom McCarthy, who I I, I just, I like, they, he, he and John Cruck, they're a great team, but I'm, they'll they'll do a great job during the game of making sure of that awareness to the hundreds of thousands of people watching the game on TV as opposed to being there. So I, I, I think that whole awareness thing is, is, is really exciting. Yeah. And, you know, Tony, as you were mentioning, the whole idea that the Phillies give it credibility. I, 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 I think you're spot on, you know, there's a brand with the Phillies and that brand somewhat, you know, and, the ALS group is is now associated to some extent with that brand and coming with that, a successful organization is that credibility that can then be parlayed into the types of sponsorships that Ellen, that you're, you know, that the association and the Phillies are hoping to, to get for the actual, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, for Lou Gehrig's day on the third there. Yeah, yeah they, gonna be a, I'm sorry. Gonna say there's a lot of ways that people will be able to find out. I'm sure by the time this podcast is online, we'll have some information about where to go on our website, alsphiladelphia.org, and definitely follow the Phillies and us at ALS Philadelphia on social media because there will be a lot of updates between now and then and, and then after the fact with pictures and follow-up. Um, but they will. Um, people are going to be very excited to go. I think that – you saw last year when people were back at Phillies games, people were excited to go. But I think this year uh, there's a lot of excitement for the team with new players. I'll be honest. Like I met some of the players through our time in the Phillies and knew some of them. But if you said that they were hiring Lenny Rafalco, I would just be like, that's great. I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I am the, cause I'm not old. None of us are old here, but like now, the more I see new people being signed to, sports contract i just think about how old they are were when like major events in history happened and i feel out of place but um i can help you i can help you we can have a you can have a little one-on-one tutorial no problem i i just care that they are good people and they win and that's those are the things and i think i've learned to uh appreciate a lot of these very famous people by the sincerity they bring to the cause and you've seen a lot of them who uh like ryan howard would like he would get up and go see Kevin Glenn who had ALS and he would leave what he was doing to go say hi to him and Aaron Nola who'd come to games and and you mentioned Tom McCarthy who was extremely he'll tweet about it sometimes on his own and talk about online and uh, John Cruck I remember at an event someone said they wanted to get their picture with him and he said me I'm like yes people like you as well they look so they all they everyone there even the people who have worked at the ballpark um, and not that no one is considered a lesser person. They're all very part of the team and part of the effort. I want to just, I was looking at my notes from the meeting and they are going to, this is how they described what they're doing. They're going to be taking, have a takeover for <laughs> on the broadcast. So the <laughs> broadcast is going to be an infomercial 
about ALS. Throughout the game, broadcasters discuss highlights of the festivals, their experiences, chapter events, etc. And then there will be interviews with alum and uh, Kelly Rose, whose uh, husband had ALS. Uh, Tony mentioned him in the beginning. And if I'm, if, if I'm lucky, I won't speak. <laughs> but John Weber will speak. And I'm sure that, I mean, I'll I'll wave. Hi. Well, hopefully, just as important, we'll get a a a, a, a what do you call it? A photo bomb from the fanatic. From the fanatic. Yes. Oh, he's got his own. He's got his own space here on all the different <laughs> things he's going to do. Ah, well, that's great. Well, this has been really an enjoyable podcast, and I know we're up against the time here, so I wanted to to thank both of you for, as you were just saying, Tony busy people taking time out of their day to support a worthy cause. And we certainly appreciate your time and, uh, you know, talking to us about your own personal relationship with ALS, as well as moving forward. So we've got context and we've got what it means. And we also know what it's going to be moving forward. So thank you so much. And maybe I'll just throw it out there, but maybe we can get a follow-up to this after the Phillies event. And see how things went. You can sort of share with us the after story as well. Lenny, do you think you'll be able to make it? Um, I, I I certainly would like to. Um, and it, it you know, quite honestly, it just depends on what the amenities are. You know, as far as me being able to um, wheelchair and you know, restroom accessibility, all that kind of stuff which I think is probably the same with most of the people there, but I certainly would love to go. Well, I know that where the seats are, they're handicapped, accessible, and they even, they, they made a point to say, and so are the restrooms. Well, that's, that's great because that's frankly one of the biggest challenges right. that, that I have in going out and that right. folks in my condition, it's going out and being there is fine, but you know, nature calls and, then you're kind of stuck in an awkward position. So, you know, those are things that we always uh, try to take into account, but I I would love to go. I really would. You'll let us know for sure as it gets closer. (laughs) We'll we'll hold two tickets for you. (laughs) And I'm sure I'll introduce you to everyone that she can. So make sure that you're as famous (laughs) as everyone else. Uh, I'll do my homework beforehand so I can study up on some arcane facts about them and maybe surprise (laughs) a few people. (laughs) I, I one time I always get the Phillies um, media guide. I don't even know if it's out yet, and even if it is, half the players aren't going to, or half the players have left, and then the ones that have replaced them aren't in there. Right. Um, so, and I would read up, and one's father invented some scientific thing, and I went over to the player and said, "Your father did this." He said, "Nah, that's not my father. It's that guy's father." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, well, it sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, you know, the other word that you mentioned, sincerity, is so important. You know, and people can sense when somebody is sincere about what they're doing, what they're saying, how they're acting, the effort they're putting into it. And once again, I know there's a lot of worthy causes out there. And I just feel very grateful that the Phillies have selected ALS as their primary charity. And um, I just wish that connection all the success in the world up to and beyond the point that a cure is found. I agree with you. Amen.
Well, thank you so much for all your hard work on this. And you'll let us know uh, when you're airing it. Well, thank you guys so all much. All right. Mm-hmm. Thank all you. Right. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so Bye-bye. much. It was so much fun. Good. Wearing our Phillies gear for everybody. Oh, you are. <laughs> yes, right. I wore my red for the uh, for the meeting today. Yeah, and, perfect. Uh, I just thought that- I'd keep it on. Got to wear the colors. <laughs> Got to wear the colors. All right. Bye bye, everybody. Bye. Have a great Have a great good weekend. night. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye. Well, Lenny, here we go. Episode six, wrapping up. Lou Gehrig, Phillies, Ellen, Tony. What an episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think it was informative for folks. Folks know a little bit more about Lou Gehrig. And also just to remind folks that on June 2nd, Major League Baseball will be recognizing Lou Gehrig and his accomplishments and the relationship and that he has with the ALS community. And then for the local folks here in the Philadelphia area, the Philadelphia Phillies will be commemorating Lou Gehrig Day on June 3rd. And uh, that'll be against the Los Angeles Angels with another relatively homegrown talent with Mike Trout coming for the coming with the Angels. So it, all, all in all, it should be a, a good, uh, busy beginning of June. And uh, I just want to thank Tony and Ellen very much for uh, joining us and providing a lot of a lot of insight and just fun discussion is and um, it was fun it was good good for sure lots to look forward to and um yeah and let's let's go Phillies <laughs> <laughs> yep absolutely and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do a podcast following um, Lou Gehrig's day and uh, the Philly festival so that we can uh, do a recap of what I hope is going to be and what I imagine and expect to be a uh, just a uh, a real nice real nice time um, with the Phillies and uh, what Major League Baseball will be doing to raise funds and awareness uh, on uh, for ALS. Yes, as Alan said, the the takeover, right? They're going to take over. <laughs> right. Take over that game and, and support ALS. And that's right. awesome. Awesome, awesome. Yep. All right, yeah. my friends. Until next time. Okay, take care, Jesse. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.